So you spend some time catching up on the, uh, on the chapter this week or whatever you want to do with your, uh, with your extra time here. We are talking about the doctrine of God today, and uh, as, as I said, that uh, this is uh, going to be an intensely biblical discussion of the doctrine of God, so we're going to start out with a, with, a, with a pop Bible quiz. Okay, like any good teacher, you, uh, you do a pop quiz every once in a while to make sure the students are keeping up on the reading. So this will not be on your, this will not affect your grade though, okay, so don't worry about that. This will not affect your grade, so... You're all going to pass the class, but uh, just to make sure you're doing your reading. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read 10 quotes from the Bible. I mean, we know the Bible's filled with all kinds of statements about God, doctrinal statements and praise. I mean, all kinds of stuff in the Bible. So I'm going to read 10 verses from the Bible. Uh, hopefully, most of them are familiar to you. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to give you a little bit to think about it. Some of you may come to mind instantly what this verse is, where it's from. So we may have to access your memory banks a little bit. So I'm going to read it, pause for a little bit, and then ask for someone to, uh, to, to let me know where that passage is from here. Okay, so are you all ready? You don't need pen, no paper, just, uh, just listen here. Okay. I'm going to start us off easy here. Okay. First verse. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. No. John, John, okay. Pastor Nate's got an advantage here, so. <laughs> he's, like, he's like the smart kid in class. We're always his answer, right? Okay. okay, you're right. John 4, John chapter 4. This is the woman at the well, Samaria, right? When uh, Jesus goes to the woman and she says, Hey, Jesus, uh, you worship in Jerusalem, but we worship in Samaria. Where, where should we be worshiping? And Jesus says, Well, God is spirit. You can worship him anywhere. Jerusalem, Samaria, it doesn't matter. Uh, but one of the, I mean, clear, I mean, this is our short catechism definition to God. God is spirit. So right here from this verse here. Okay, move on. This is the second one. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This is a bit harder. The Psalms. Okay, the Psalms. Anybody know? I know Pastor Nate knows. Anybody else? <laughs> All right, give it to us. 139. Psalm 139. Yeah, this is amazing. But I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Yeah, this. Anytime you hear this verse, I think of uh, the story Runaway Bunny. Anybody read that story to their kids? And if, like the little bunny and the mom, it says, well, the bunny says, well, I take like a sailboat and sail across the oceans and stuff. And Will you find me? The mom says, yep, I'll, I'll come and get you. And Think about that. Well, where can I go from your... If I go to like the highest mountain, God, will you be there? Says, yep, I'll be there. If I go like the middle of the desert, you know, far away from civilization, yep, I'll still be there. So there's nowhere you can flee from God. We'll, we'll talk about uh, God's omnipresence in a little bit, what that means for us. God is, God is everywhere. All right, here's the next one. There's a pattern here, alternates between Old Testament and New Testament. So if you're Kind of wondering, I'll help you narrow it down a little bit. So the last was Old Testament of the Psalms. Here is uh, the next verse. In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. Acts, okay. Acts chapter 17. This is the, uh, this is the chapter where Paul is engaging with the Athenians on the Areopagus, and he actually starts quoting their poets and philosophers. So... Uh, 
I forgot what poet this is, Epimenides or something, quoting this. Uh, he says, he, say, he sees the statue of an unknown God and says, hey, I, this unknown God you're worshiping, I'll tell you who it is. It's the real God, the only one who exists. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Talking about the, uh, the self-sufficiency of God. God is the source of all being. So using their own uh, poetry to prove the existence of God here. All right, this one is easy. I mean, if you don't get this one, you can just need to like walk out and knock him back this morning. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Exodus chapter 3, that correct. This is the, uh, the burning bush, right? When uh, Moses sees the burning bush and God says, I'm going to send you to back to Egypt to get my people out of bondage. And he says, well, what if I go to the elders and say, God has sent me? And they say, what's, what's his name? Who is this God who sent you? So God goes through this whole speech telling him his name. Okay, so back to the New Testament. This one's a bit harder here. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Reverence and awe. Right, yep, they break, break out of Hebrews here. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, God is a consuming fire. And there's this whole section here where he's comparing um, Mount Sinai on Mount Zion. He goes back to the Mount Sinai revelation, God coming down on the fire and, and you know, smoke and thunder. And, and uh, our God is a consuming fire, he says. <laughs> All right, this one should be fairly easy too. This is the Old Testament. Right, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Yeah, this is the Isaiah, the calling of Isaiah, where he sees the, the vision of God on his throne and the, you know, the seraphim around the throne praising God. Holy, holy, holy. So we'll talk more about the holiness of God in a couple weeks. One of the uh, obviously critical passages um, describing the holiness of God here. Okay, number seven. We're almost, almost done here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation, this is Revelation chapter 1, the very opening, opening chapter of the book where um, you know, John is, is seeing this initial vision and God describes himself for the Alpha and the Omega. So he's the beginning and the end. When the beginning and the end happen, he's already there. He is the Almighty. We'll talk about that a little bit too in a, bit, in a few minutes here. This is one that's a bit more difficult. Old Testament here, a bit more difficult. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? It's Job, right? So after, uh, you know, God kind of disappears from the scene for this middle, you know, 30-something chapters of Job, and God comes back on the scene and says, Job, hey, listen to me. Did you, you know, did you put the you know, stars in the sky? Did you pierce Leviathan, you know, the big sea monster? Did you put a hook in his nose and, and pull him around like a, like a little goldfish? So, so um, Job is forced to deal with the, the sovereignty and the reality of God here. Okay, you guys are doing good. I'm impressed here. All right, back to New Testament. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God... Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a bit more challenging. Was that it? Okay. All right. 
This is First Timothy. Yeah, at the very opening of the book, I mean, Paul has this doxology as he's writing to Timothy, doxology. And this is obviously where we get to him, immortal, immortal invisible, God only wise, from this one verse here. And this, this uh, just kind of this random verse in this letter to Timothy has this amazing theology. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. All right, last one. Last one. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah chapter 40. And he goes on and, you know, even vigorous young men stumble, but the Lord will knew their strength, mount up with wings like eagles, this amazing passage here. I always think of it as the... uh, the Chariots of Fire passage. If you remember that movie, Chariots of Fire, it was like, man, like 40 years ago now. But, uh, you know, Eric Little, who's a Scottish runner who refused to run on Sunday. So all the other runners are running his race to the Olympics on that day. He's there in the, in the chapel preaching a sermon on this passage here. Um, amazing passage in Isaiah. So, all right, pretty good. But um, the Bible is just filled with all sorts of statements about God, all sorts of doctrinal statements. We're going to talk about that today. So. So I thought about, the, as I'm reading through this chapter, all kinds of thoughts come to mind, stuff I've read and heard over the years. So the first thing that came to mind reading this chapter was a quote from, from A.W. Tozer. Anybody know who heard of Tozer? Or Tozer was a uh, pastor in Chicago in I think the mid-20th century, 1950s, 60s, who wrote books and, and article stuff. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a fairly short book on the attributes of God. And he, uh, he opens the book with this statement here. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if I know what you think about God, I know a lot about you, don't I? The God that you serve and the God that you worship. He goes on to say that our our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. So if what we think about God is so important to, in our lives, the most important thing about us, then isn't it important that we actually know the, the real God, the real God who exists? And where other place we go to find information than the Bible, the source of, the source of information about God? And this is he, the other statement I read later in the chapter. It's, um, it, I mean, it matches up so closely with what Paul Tripp talks about in this book. He says, uh, Our creedal statements are of little consequence compared with our actual thoughts about him. So our, what, we, what our creed we, we say we subscribe to is really of little importance compared to what we actually think about God. And this is actually what Paul's trips, functional, you know, confessional functional theology distinction is there, right? I don't care what your creed is, what you say you believe, what do you actually think about God and how do you live that out? So. So what do we actually believe about God? We'll talk about that today, but what, what do Americans in general believe about God? Um, several years ago, there was a uh, couple of sociologists who conducted a study. I think it was younger, you know, younger adults and, and teens, college age, and uh, they came up with this uh, concept of God based upon those beliefs of those, of those young people called moralistic therapeutic deism. Anyone heard that statement before? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Anybody? Want to even take a stab at what that means? Moralistic, therapeutic, the, the, the religion of, of young people, 
And this is like 15 years ago. So these are like adults now with, with older kids. So, yeah. It's pretty good. Pretty good description. God is a therapeutic God. So moralistic means that God wants you to do good stuff. He wants you to you try to try to be good. Therapeutic, God is there to make you feel good about yourself, make you happy. And then deism, you know, the deism we know back to, you know, it's the enlightenment deistic God who kind of made everything and that set the wheels in motion and left the world to, to, uh, to, to, to go on its own. So God really doesn't get involved in affairs of your life. He's kind of there when you need him, but he's not really involved in what's going on. But he doesn't want you to be good, and he really, really wants you to be happy. So that is a typical God that the average American worships today. So we'll see that uh, the God we worship is, is, uh, is much different here. The problem, of course, is that we are prone to idolatry, aren't we? We are prone to create our own gods. They're usually in our image, um, usually a lot like us. And uh, we, all, we always are recreating the first sin of our parents when the, the Satan in the garden said, you shall be like God. So we're, we're more than happy to make gods in our own image. Um, so we'll talk more about that today, how, how, how we should be thinking about God here. So let me take you back to, um, to your childhood. For some of you, it was a while ago. Neil, it was a while ago, right? Uh, for some of you, you're still there, like Esther, you're still a child. So at some point in your childhood, you became aware of, even if, even if you were born in the church and grew up in the church, you became aware of the, the reality of God, right? The existence of God. Maybe you were outside and you were starting to learn about the universe and how, how vast it is. And you, you thought to yourself, wow, if, how did God make all this? He just spoke it into existence. It all came to be. Or you thought about, uh, I mean, the, if God is, if the universe is this big, God must be even somehow bigger and mightier than the universe. Or maybe you started to ponder this idea of, of infinity, that uh, you know, as far as I go back in time, God was already there, already existing. No matter how far in the future I go, well, God's there too. He, he, never, he never began or will never end. How do I figure that out? Or maybe you started to, wrestle with the Trinity, like, so there's one God, and there are three, per- the Father, Son, the Spirit, there's different persons, but there's still one God. How do you, how do you square that circle? I mean, it doesn't, how do you reconcile those things? So, so we all, at some point, have this, this, sense, of, this sense of wonder and awe at, uh, at the universe and the God who made it. Um, you know, it's, Pastor Nate talks about this, and we live in an enchanted world, um, it's, but at some point, we, start, we sort of lose that, don't we? We lose that, that, that wonder and awe, that sort of childlike wonder at the universe. And I thought about this this week as I read, a, uh, read this quote by G.K. Chesterton. Anybody know who Chesterton was? Chesterton was sort of the, uh, the C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis. He was, uh, he was a British author. Um, he wrote uh, Father Brown Mysteries. Have you read those Father Brown Mysteries? He wrote uh, um, he wrote autobiographies of like Aquinas, and he was a journalist. He wrote newspaper articles and, and editorials, and he was also an apologist for the Christian faith. Although he became Catholic, so we won't hold that against him too much. But uh, he became a Catholic, and it was a positive. So one of his most famous books, probably the most famous, is a book called Orthodoxy which is in the defense of the Christian faith, but sort of like Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. It's really kind of a, a biography as well, autobiography. He talks about his journey 
to the faith. But this is a quote that he offers in that book, and um, I, I love this quote. He talks about, um, he says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Okay, how many of us remember those times when kids just say, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, throw me up in the air or, I mean, do it again, do it again. And he's just like, really? Are we done yet? Um, he's, I just, I'm sure we've all been there. Then he says, goes on and says, grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. Grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I just love that, that God never gets tired of, uh, I mean, every single, to the smallest detail of creation he is intimately involved in. And, uh, you know, we get so sort of jaded and, and, you know, don't even notice the beauty of what's around us. I just love that idea that every morning God says, hey, son, come up again. I want So I love that quote, what it tells us about God. And Tripp will go on in the next chapter to talk about uh, how, the, how God and his, the doctrine of creation should impact us uh, as we, you know, maintain that sense of wonder and awe at, at who God is. So. But as we grow older, our, uh, our concepts of God gets more sophisticated. We ask deeper questions about God. Does, like, does God really see everything that I do as you get older? Is God really here watching me all the time? Um, how can God allow evil and suffering? How does a good God allow this stuff to happen? And then we wrestle with the, I mean, the eternal question of the divine sovereignty versus human responsibility question, the predestination, all these sorts of things. We get more sophisticated in our questions, but we sort of lose that sense of, of awe and wonder at God. So the doctrine of God is clearly important to the Reformed faith. That was really sort of my entry to the Reformed faith, probably like many of you. I remember, uh, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist where, you know, Southern Baptists have great seminaries and you know, great theologians, but you know, overall the denomination is not you know, really doctrinal, uh, meaty doctrine. Um, so I got Reformed in my college years, and it wasn't really until I finished college I started reading Reformed authors like R.C. Sproul. How many folks have read The Holiness of God? That was my entry to the Reformed faith. We'll talk about the Holiness of God next week. But R.C. Sproul for me was kind of like a, uh, a gateway drug to Reformed theology. Like you sort of get some R.C. Sproul and you need more, right? So you read like uh, Chosen by God and Pleasing God and then you need some harder stuff because that's not enough anymore. So you read like J.I. Packer and I was reading you know, Puritans after, after a while. So, But R.C. Sproul is kind of my, my entryway to the Reformed theology. But there is, I mean, Reformed theology has such a, such a high view of God, God's sovereignty, his majesty. And that's really the, you know, more the emphasis of Calvin than predestination than we think about. I mean, he opens the book talking about the knowledge of God and, and uh, God's majesty and sovereignty. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about uh, for the last few minutes here in the next week, the, the doctrine of God, what the Bible teaches about God. 
Now, Bob brought up a point last week that uh, uh, I wanted to bring up again, and that's the idea, uh, the contrast between, between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God and knowing God. What do we mean by that? We talk about knowing about God versus actually knowing God. What's the difference there? Yeah, I can know all sorts of things about God. I, I, can, I can memorize the confession of faith, I mean, but not really know the living God that exists, right? There are all sorts of you know, atheists who teach in religious studies departments and colleges. They, they don't know the living and true God. I can know all sorts of stuff about it, but actually, not actually know the God who exists. And if you've ever read Knowing God by J.A. Packer, it's one of the things he starts off talking about in this book. He says, our, uh, our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. So the purpose of this studying the doctrine of God is not to learn more about the doctrine of God, it's to know God better. You know, I can know all sorts of stuff about my wife. I can, you know, she's cute, she's blonde, she's, I don't know, 5'8". I've, I don't know how much she weighs, but you could probably you know, make a guess. Um, I can know all sorts of stuff about her, but not really know her, right? In order to know her, she has to first reveal herself to me. I have to know what she's thinking. What, you know, I have to see her, observe her at work, what she does. Um, I have to converse with her, back and forth relationship. Um, and that's what it really means to know somebody. We do the same with God. We can, we can define God all we want, but we don't know God unless we see him revealed in his word. In his, uh, in his works, in his word, and then engaged in the back and forth with him through prayer. Um, so I can know all sorts of stuff about God, but not actually, not actually know the God who exists. Uh, and we know God through his word and his works. And we, we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we read about stuff that God did back in the days of you know, the Israelites, that's the same God. He does not change. He's the same God revealed himself back to the Israelites. So when we read about the, you know, when the the Israelites came out of, came out of Egypt, and, uh, and God leads them through the, the Red Sea. Um, and they offer this amazing song to God. They sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Lord is my strength, and my song has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the same God we worship today. He has not changed, and he will not change. So we can read this word and know that this is the God we worship today here. Um, and what Packer says here, the way we go transition from knowing about God to actually knowing God, he says that we, do, we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So what we read in Scripture, we turn into meditation as we think about it, pray about it, and that leads to, leads to praise for God, and that uh, helps, helps us grow in our knowledge here. So we talked a little bit about this sort of pattern of Scripture from, uh, Paul Tripp lays this out in the, in the opening introduction here, from you know, the, the drama of Scripture, this big narrative that goes from beginning to end, you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, from that, we have doctrines, we have those statements about God that we, we have in Scripture, and that we respond as disciples, following, learning from Christ, I want to add one element there, and this is really, um, Michael Horton talks about this a lot. He has a fourth, a fourth D, so drama, doctrine, discipleship, and doxology. So when we read about 
God in Scripture and respond to him, our first response should not be try to define him more accurately. It should be just praise. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he's done. And we see this in Exodus 15. Like I said, their, their first response when they come across the, you know, the Red Sea is to break out in song and praise to God. We see this in, uh, in Romans chapter 11, the end of the chapter. You know, Romans 9 through 11, I don't know if anyone understands these chapters. I mean, there's some really super, super deep theology. And Paul finishes it and he says, he just like breaks out in praise. Like, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. I mean, he's just like, he can't contain himself anymore dealing with all his deep doctrine. He just has to praise God for, uh, for who he is and what he's done. Um, so our initial response to reading doctrine should not be to try to improve our theology and have a more accurate definition of God, but just to praise God for, for who he is. And we see this in, the, uh, we see this in, in our, our hymnody, right? How many hymns do we have that are, are written in praise of God? I mean, just over and over, our, our praise to God is, is, uh, is a subject of, of our hymns here. Well, we're going to talk about doctrine of God here for a few minutes, and this is a subject that has captivated the minds of you know, some of the smartest theologians in, in the Christian church for 2,000 years. So we are, not going to, uh, we are not going to nail this down in 15 minutes. You know, Augustine tackled, tackled this, and you know, Aquinas and Calvin and even modern-day theologians have tackled the doctrine of God. So we're not going to be able to, uh, to get our arms around this. They developed this whole... Terminology, words, phrases, concepts to describe God, you know, transcendence, imminence. I won't go through all the whole list here, but, um, but uh, we have our stand. We have our Westminster Confession of Faith. We looked at the uh, Doctrine of Scripture last week, last couple weeks, and it's amazing to me that when you come to Doctrine of Scripture and Westminster Confession of Faith, it's, it's laid out like so, so clearly. It's like step by step. Like here we have first section deals with general revelation, natural, natural revelation, special revelation in scripture. It says, this is the canon. These are the books that are scripture. This is not scripture. Um, you know, spirit's necessary to inspire the word and help you understand it. And, and it's just kind of laid out like orderly, right? It's very orderly. You get the chapter on God and it's like the, 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 uh, uh, Western Confession, the divines there were like, okay, let's, let's just list like all the things we know about God from the Bible. Um, and then they, they like put them on a, like a whiteboard like this maybe, and they all this list of you know, phrases about God. And they said, okay, how do, what do we do with this, guys? And they said, I don't know. Just like throw them all in there. So when you read the Western Confession of Faith, this chapter on God, it's like just like a list of like all these attributes. It's like there's no really, there's a little bit of, of uh, sort of reason and organization to it, but it's like they just list, like how do, we, how do we deal with this? Let's just list all kinds of stuff about God. So um, in order to make things a bit easier to go through this morning, we are going to uh, turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which has this very neat, simple doctrine of God. And uh, we use this as our foundation this morning, just to talk briefly about, uh, about God and, and tackle, tackle this doctrine here. And what I like about this, can you guys see over here? A little bit? I'll turn a little bit. Is that better? Okay. What I like about this definition is, uh, you know, it's, it's neat and simple, but if you go through it, sort of, uh, you know, step by step, you can see all these, all these attributes of God that sort of, you can sort of derive from this, this simple definition here. So let's go through it br- briefly in our last uh, 10 minutes or so here and, uh, and see what it gives us. And we're going to talk more about a couple things 
the holiness of God, we'll talk about in a couple weeks, sovereignty, and then when we come back in the fall, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off and talk about God's omnipotence, but let's, let's start here. God is a spirit, the first state, God is a spirit. So God, God as, as, as the confession of faith says, God has no body, parts, or passions. He doesn't have, any, he doesn't have bodily passions, he doesn't get hungry, um, he has no body, and we can't see him. That's one of the points that Moses makes when, when uh, he, he you know, gives the second commandment. You, you didn't see the form of anything on the mountain. God did not reveal a body to you. You saw the fire, the consuming fire and the smoke. Uh, God is a spirit, just like we read in, in John chapter 4. So that does mean that we, in the second commandment, we don't make, we don't make graven images to worship. I mean, you look at the very first thing the Israelites did after Moses came down from the mountain with the law, what's the first thing they did? Yeah, Aaron says that Aaron said to Moses, I, I threw this gold in the fire and this calf just came out and uh, we just had to worship it. So uh, God is a spirit. We, he's a, he has no body here. Um, then this, this catechist goes on to say, he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. So you can look at those each as separate, as separate statements. So God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. And just go all the way down the list. So let's go do that briefly. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Well, infinite in his being is God's omnipresence, right? God is, God is everywhere. And I used to think of it, perhaps you as a kid, think of it, God's like kind of this gas, this gas that permeates the whole universe, right? He's just like everywhere. He's like this aura. Um, but unlike a gas, God is present everywhere in the fullness of his being. So it's not like parts of God are here and parts of God are there. He is everywhere and the fullness of, being, of his, his essential being is, is present every single place there is, every single place in the universe. Um, so he's, he can be present to bless, or he can be present to judgment. So we'll talk more about that later too. Um, God is eternal in his being. What is that talking about? Yeah, God is, God is, he, is etern- he is eternal. He is everlasting. As the, as the Bible talks about, he had no beginning and he had no end, um, and he does he does not change, uh, as the next as the next section talks about. So God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. Um, God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His wisdom. What doctrine might this relate to? It's one of those omni words. Omniscience, right? Omniscience. God is. Is has all knowledge, eternal, changeable in his wisdom. God never learns anything. God never says, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I just, I just learned that." God knows everything. God knows everything that's ever happened, everything that will ever happen. God's never caught by surprise. Um, God has never, uh, never had to had to learn something, or which means that there are challenges in Scripture, right? Because there are places to talk about God changing His mind or regretting. Uh, some action or grieving over some decision that that was made, uh, and theologians have wrestled with this, and some of them have come up with some pretty pretty wacky and orthodox views about about God. Um, so we won't go into that details about that, but I mean, there are some challenges we have in Scripture dealing with some of these things. 
God's eternal changeable in his power. Another omni word. Omnipotence, right? God, has, uh, God can do anything that he wants to do. This doesn't mean God can do anything. The, the question like, uh, can God make a circle square or something? Well, that's, that's just illogical. But anything that God wills to do, he can do it. Uh, I mean, the God who spoke the universe from existence can surely do anything that he desires, right? Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his, in his power. Uh, infinite, eternal, changeable in his holiness. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But we know the holiness really is the, is the purity of God. You know, like holiness is the God is separate. God is transcendent. He is not like the creatures. Uh, we see this radical distinction between the creature and the creator. Um, talking about God's holiness. And I've been reading through, like I said last week, reading through Leviticus. Um, man, those leprosy chapters are really hard to get through. But uh, over and over and over you read about God saying, Hey, be holy, because I am holy. I am set apart, therefore you, my people, need to be set apart. Uh, we'll talk more about the holiness, and you know, we'll probably, probably throw in some quotes from Holiness of God in a couple weeks. That great book there. God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his, in his justice. I'm talking about God's righteousness. God, God is the standard. God is the standard of right, and God always does right. Um, and he, he, will ensure, he will ensure justice is enacted, and whether, it's, uh, uh, whether it's our time scale or, or God's time scale. Um, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. This is interesting because one attribute you don't find listed specifically is, is love, right? So I, there was an elder back at our church, San Diego, who whenever he said the short of catechism would, would add love at the end. Justice, goodness, truth, and love. But you sort of argue that, I mean, love is kind of wrapped up in this. In the, in the confession of faith, they actually talk more about, you know, goodness, mercy, grace, love, you know, loving kindness, faithfulness, all these things wrapped up in the idea of goodness. But we know God is infinitely eternal, changeable in his love for us. We'll never change uh, no matter what we do. God loved us even before the creation, infinite love. He loved us before the creation of the world. He loved us and knew us. And then finally, truth. God is the eternal standard of truth. Um, all truth is summed up. God, God is the source of all truth and, and is the sum of all truth. Um, and we find his truth revealed in Scripture, obviously. So this is very quick. I mean, you could, we could spend, you could do a whole class on like just these attributes, just amazing uh, to think about the attributes of God. If we had to sum them all up in, in one word, if you had to use just one single word to sum up everything on this whiteboard here, what would that word be? What would be a good word to do that? How about glory? Yeah. How about glory? That's a pretty good word to use. Glory. Glory, is, as Paul Tripp says, is glory is all that God is. God's glory is the greatness, the beauty, and perfection of all that he is. Here's a couple more definitions. The glory of God is the weight, so that the word, Hebrew word weight, glory comes from the word that means heaviness or weightiness. God is the the weight of the majestic glory is the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself as creator, sustainer, judge, and redeemer. So God, is, God has glory, but also Scripture talks about us giving glory to God. And we don't make God more glorious. We just acknowledge his, his reputation. We acknowledge that he is, he, is, he is glorious here. And my favorite one is the last one. God's glory is the sum total of all his attributes. 
It is the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. So glory is just the, the sheer godness of God. Everything that God is is wrapped up in this one word of glory. And we see this you know, word used throughout Scripture to, to, to describe God. So we'll talk more about this next time, but uh, Tripp, and one of, his, one of his themes he kind of pounds on in his books is the fact that, uh, that we, are, we are hardwired for glory. We, are, we, we seek out glory. And uh, I can, you can, a perfect example of this that he gives sometimes is the, uh, how we love to associate ourselves with, with sports teams. So our sports teams, we associate with them, and we can sort of derive glory we get from, from acknowledging our... So, when did the Seahawks win the Super Bowl? It was 2014, right? So it was eight years ago, Seahawks won the Super Bowl. How many cars do you see driving around Seattle that still have Super Bowl champion license plate holders or stickers on them, right? So Seahawks fans are still basking in the glory of something that happened eight years ago. Even after the next year, they had like the epic Super Bowl fail. Uh, you cannot find a, a worse way to lose Super Bowl, but people are still basking in that glory. People, you know, wear their jerseys on Fridays, and he talks about how we're just hardwired. We just seek out glory wherever we can find it. And he says in, this, in the chapter that, uh, that we are glory thieves. Um, we are glory thieves, seeking glory for ourselves. And once again, this is the sin, the first sin in the garden. You will be like God. Um, you may have heard a phrase that the, uh, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism first question should be revised to say, the chief end of man is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. Um, that is, that's what it means to be a glory thief, to, to try to rob God of his glory. Um, he says this glory orientation we have is meant to drive us to God. He is the only source of glory. He's the only, only one who can give us what we, what we want in life, the only one who can give us what we need. Um, nothing in, in creation can satisfy us. Nothing else can capture our hearts. Um, you think, obviously, of the, uh, the quote by Augustine that you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Uh, there is no other source. No other, nothing else can capture um, give us this glory that we seek. Um, so as you read Scripture this week, and as we wrap up here, my encouragement to you as you read Scripture this week is to, uh, is to think intentionally about what it reveals, what you're reading, how it reveals to you the character of God. Um, we can often glimpse over Scripture and, and, and just read it, especially passages we've read repeatedly, but you know, maybe read a bit slower and think intentionally about what this passage is revealing to you about God, His character, His attributes, and who he is and who he is toward us in his, his, in his words and his works here. And then we'll address next week, so start thinking about that as well, or and sorry, in two weeks, is um, how should this knowledge, how should this doctrine of God shape my life on a daily basis? And um, I said last week that I, that I you know, really enjoyed that chapter on the, his doctrine of Scripture in everyday life, but I think this other one, the next one is really good too. I probably need to read that every, every week or so because he just... Like example after example of how this doctrine of Scripture should shape our lives. And he says, I'm just like giving you a tidbit here. I could write so much more on this about how this doctrine should shape our lives. So ask yourself, how should it shape our lives? And where are those gaps in your life between what you say you believe about God and how you actually live on a, on a daily basis? We'll, t- we'll tackle that huge topic in a couple weeks. So uh, you know, have a week off to catch up on your reading or whatever you want. But please come back next week for, for Mike Rasmussen, and we'll hear the update on the Hope Russia. All right, let's wrap up in prayer then.
Father, we acknowledge that when we come, we, we talk about you, we're talking about something that is just simply incomprehensible. We, we cannot get our arms wrapped around you, your being, your works. And, um, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in a true way, in a way we can understand that you've, you've accommodated yourself, you've, you've spoken like a, a parent to, to infants in words that we can understand. So we thank you for your truth, what it reveals about you. We pray that you would help us to examine our own lives and and see what we believe about you and, and how that should impact us on a daily basis. We pray that the Spirit would be with us as we read your word this week and, and learn about you. And even more importantly, that we, we would learn you, that we get to know you through your scripture as we engage and meditate and pray and praise you. So we thank you for that and pray for your blessing upon the service this morning. And uh, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us to, to acknowledge and, and just be in awe of the, the wonder of your creation. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.